Well, I did notice they only called him Tahala once. I don't think they called him Tahala at all. Don't give me guff. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, I come to you today with a heavy heart, because we are at war. Fandom is once again being called upon to sort ourselves into separate and distinct camps, and today we are going to debate Team Edward versus Team Jacob. Wait, wait, wait. no, 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 no. Team Peta versus Team Gale. No, no, no. Team Kirk versus Team Viger. Or Team Kirk versus Team Cybok. Wait, shit. I mean Team Cap and Team Iron Man, of course, as we will dive into the brand new Captain America Civil War the only way we know how, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as Kevin Feige gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to discuss this new blockbuster motion picture. And of course this discussion will involve spoilers aplenty, so be warned. I must, as always, introduce my brother of discussion, Mr. Scott Butler. Hey, Scott, we managed to set up a podcast about a new movie without doing 30 hours of podcasts about all the movies leading up to it. How do we manage that one? Well, because I refused to watch most of them. Yes, that is true. And since you won't edit your own podcast, (laughs) you need to rope me into all of these things. And I can't do a podcast about a movie I've never seen. Well, I could. It would be entertaining for me, but I doubt it would be entertaining for anyone who had actually seen the film. Oh, there are people who do podcasts about movies they haven't seen all the time. It used to be the Overthinking It podcast's core gimmick before they started getting like sponsors and stuff. I thought that would be very entertaining for me. I could just sit here and take pot shots at the movie while you and our honored guests try to discuss it seriously. But I don't think that would be entertaining for anyone other than me. Right. Well, as a bit of background... Uh, among this whole Marvel series, you saw The Incredible Hulk a long time ago, but that doesn't matter anymore. I saw The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton, because I like Edward Norton. Then when they announced the Avengers movie, and it didn't have Edward Norton, I kind of went, okay, so I'm not interested in that at all. So, I didn't see any of the other movies until we were going to do this podcast. So I watched the two Captain America movies, and I watched the two Avengers movies, and I watched the two Thor movies. That's my background in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You did? Yeah. I thought you only watched the Captain Americas. Since those were the only ones you watched with me. Yeah. Well, I I watched the other ones later. 
Yeah, I kind of wanted to make you watch Ultron, but you refused. Yeah, I was kind of sick of it that day. But then later I watched the first Avengers, and it was good enough that I watched the second one. Alright. Yeah, I wanted to force you to watch Ultron because I thought you would be very confused if you didn't go into this movie knowing who the Vision was. I suppose, but I mean... I mean, that's the main example. I, I kept thinking of the Vision because I like the Vision, but, but that's me. I watched those six. I watched the two Captain Americas, I watched the two Avengers movies, and I watched the two Thor movies. Robert Downey Jr. being smug was already the least interesting part of the Avengers movies, so I had no interest to watch him for two hours. So I didn't watch any of the Iron Mans, and I honestly could not work up any interest in a movie about Ant-Man, so I skipped them. Well, I like all the Marvel movies to varying degrees, but that's me. And also, we have gone too long without introducing our honored guest. Our guest today is someone I have been eagerly anticipating having back in the podcast Mind Palace. He is part of the comics contingent of Place to Be Nation, the man I would trust first in any discussion of The Good Captain, Mr. Tim Capel. Tim, I realize we're keeping you up kind of late to do this reaction show. We're still friends, right? Hey, can you move your seat up? <laughs> if that's what it takes. So how how do you even start to address all of the intertwining plot threads and the intertwining characters in this movie? This movie had a lot of heavy lifting to do because it put a lot on itself. I, I wouldn't call it baggage because it was all pretty compelling and it was all coming together already. But Scott, how do you feel the movie did kind of keeping all those plates up in the air at once. I'm not sure what you mean by all those plates that it kept up in the air. It was a fairly straightforward movie. Well, it had about 65 different characters with different motivations and stories. Well, that's true. There were a whole lot of characters. Most of these movies have one hero, and this one had at least 12. So, I guess it was complicated from that perspective. But it didn't really dwell on a lot of them. Really, there was like four or five that it really spent time on and dwelled on what their motivation was. And so, it didn't get bogged down in anybody. It did have a lot of remits to fulfill, it seems like. And this is certainly not the movie to come in at if you're unfamiliar with the tangled web of films that the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has weaved up to this point. If you're an outsider, if you don't have some familiarity or haven't seen at least, I'd say, one of the previous installments of the principal character's previous films, then you're going to be lost. But the movie isn't really interested in, in bringing you up to speed in that respect. It's more like this is the, what, 13th film in the series at this point. So if you don't know what you're in for, good luck. Not really a conventional way to to structure a blockbuster movie, but I think they've earned it and they can get away with it at this stage. I feel like there's a lot of backstory for all the characters going into this movie that you get from their previous movies that I don't really feel like I missed anything just because I'm not aware of it, you know? Like... I'm sure there's a whole lot of stuff in the three Iron Man movies that builds towards where his character is in this movie, but I don't feel like I've missed anything by not seeing any of those, because I don't know that it's there. Yeah, there's actually an entire, like, 
reversal in the way that his character feels about a lot of these issues that this movie is about. Well, I mean, there's a difference between watching a movie, having not seen the backstory, and just being completely lost. Like, I don't understand why these people are doing this. And then there's watching a movie where the people do things and it makes perfect sense, and you don't miss the things you don't know. Yeah, I think maybe sometimes it's really hard to judge when you're on the inside of a lot of that stuff what it'll seem like to someone on the outside. And maybe sometimes when you know a lot of the background... And I'm not really one to talk about knowing all the background, because I've seen all the movies. I know fuck all about comics. That's why we have Tim. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of background even there and a lot of shades on all of these stories, obviously. But I think sometimes it's really hard to judge how confusing you think something will be to someone who hasn't seen the previous iterations. Well, well I feel like that's up to the skill of the writers, where, you know, someone that's seen three Iron Man movies can watch Iron Man in this movie and see where he's coming from out of those three movies, whereas me, who has not watched three Iron Man movies, can still watch Iron Man in this movie. And he's just a character and he does stuff. And it makes sense. Yeah, I'm not real big on the movies being entirely beholden to the source material in the comics, even if it is coming from a more specific place like you know civil war it was a very popular crossover dating back wow 10 years now that this film borrows elements from but i think that the only purpose that a film really serves is to be faithful to what it has established not what the source material has laid out i don't like when things are slavishly devoted to the form that they originated in. They're, we're talking about entirely different mediums. So, you know, as long as this is consistent in the context of the films that have come before, that's more important than being consistent to the comics that are inspiring them, at least in my opinion. There, certainly there's a lot of disagreement on that point. But again, 13 films in, we're dealing with an entirely different animal now. So whatever the films do... I don't think you can really put that on Kevin Feige to say, well, you're not being faithful to the comics at this stage. They're really past that. It's more important that you capture the spirit of these characters more than the the intricacies and the, and the nuances and the minutia of every plot turn that's ever taken place in 50 plus years of continuity. Well, my understanding is that the Civil War storyline is really, really, really different from what it was originally in the comics, because if I remember correctly, the contention in the comics was about whether to disclose everyone's secret identity, whereas in the cinematic universe, they basically did that at the end of Captain America 2. Kind of. We can get into that a little bit. Um, the problem with, with Civil War, the comic, is that it was rather inconsistent Superheroes revealing their identities was a part of that, but really it came down to if you're going to be a superpowered operative, you must register. Now, it wasn't entirely clear throughout the entire miniseries if that meant everybody with powers was going to be pressed into service, whether they wanted to be or not, or if you just had to publicly register, identify who you were, what your capabilities were, and could sit out 
you know, any conflicts on the sidelines. That was something that wasn't entirely made clear, at least to me. And I, I think that's a case of just too many cooks in the kitchen. We had a lot of writers on this beyond just the main spine of the miniseries itself, which was seven issues. You had tons of tie-ins. This was something that lasted months and months and got delayed on top of that. So it, it went sideways at various points. And that was kind of to the story's detriment. But yeah, superhero uh, civilian identities was a part of that, but it, it wasn't what the, the conflict really hinged on. And yeah, the movie obviously takes that in a very different direction where this is actually what we learn, just the backdrop of the main event that is revealed in really the third act, which I suppose we'll get to. And I think this movie is well served by that. I'm glad that the war between the superheroes was not really the main event here. Yeah, and also, whatever stuff there was in the comics about superhero registration took place in a Marvel universe that includes the X-Men. In which, exactly. In which, in which case, mutant registration had been a topic for a long time, and one portrayed as more of a black-and-white government-stomping-on-people issue. And so, one of the things that I really appreciated about this movie was that they went to great lengths to make both sides look reasonable, and not to turn anyone on either side into an explicit bad guy. Well, they made both sides look reasonable in the conflict over whether or not to accept the oversight of this UN committee. Yeah. When they later got to the part where, that they actually fought about, they made it explicitly clear that Captain America was right. Cause well, when... And that, that goes back to how this movie has to fulfill a lot of remits. It's, you know, it's been described as Avengers 2.5, it's also Captain America 3. It's it's his movie, so there's a sense that he kind of has to be the one that you side with ultimately, but whether or not that makes sense logically is worth debating for sure. Because the, the initial conflict between them was whether or not to accept this oversight. What they actually fought about in the airport was should they arrest the Winter Soldier for blowing up the U.N.? When you know by that point he's not the one that did it, and the guy that actually did it is getting away while they're being delayed by Iron Man and his cronies. Yeah, the one time they actually did make someone a really explicit bad guy was when Stark got that evidence finally and went to William Hurt and said, you know, there's all this, we have to go after this guy. And William Hurt said, no, I don't care, go arrest the Winter Soldier. Well, that pretty much shows why Captain America didn't want to be under that oversight. Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, the basic conflict is that Captain America trusts himself more than he trusts anyone who would try to oversee him. Whereas at that point, Iron Man didn't trust himself more than he would trust the people trying to oversee him. Yeah, exactly. The, the essential conflict between Iron Man and Captain America, one thing that I really appreciate is that that's based so much in how they've been characterized in all of these movies so far. Tony Stark, in his films, is really animated by his insecurities, by his sense of inferiority, and then later by his PTSD and anxiety issues. And so 
he doesn't trust himself, basically. He sees these tragedies that occur in terms of collateral damage and the like, and his reaction is, I can't be allowed to do this. Someone needs to be able to tell me not to do this. Yeah, by, by the time of this movie, he's downright morose and guilt-ridden. I mean, he, he's kind of like a man defeated. And you're like, wow, that's, that's quite a turn for this character to take. But it is the arc of his character throughout, like you said, his solo films and what happened in both Avengers movies. You see how he gets to this point. It's not just something that comes out of the blue and it's not just sacrificing his character in service of the plot. Right, and that goes all the way back to his origin, where he came in already having the towering intellect and being able to make all the things that he has made, and he has to hone that with compassion and maturity, which are things that he has to learn and are very, very hard for him to learn. And so he at least has an understanding that I have things to learn here, and so someone needs to teach me, someone needs to kind of lead me a little bit. Even while he bucks against anyone telling him what to do, but that's just one of the contradictions of his character. Whereas Captain America starts out with that compassion and that maturity and that sense of moral rectitude. And so his basic stance is that some form of absolute freedom will allow people to act in a moral way because people are essentially good, except the bad guys. Except all that is presented kind of inconsistently because Tony Stark is saying, you know, look at what I've done, I need someone to tell me no. Well, in the previous movie, Bruce Banner told him no. And he just said, ah, and went and did it anyway. So why would this group of people telling him no be any different? And in fact, it's not. Because as soon as he gets that evidence about Bucky Barnes, he ditches the oversight and goes to help Captain America too. Yeah, that's one of the things that's really hard about doing this sort of storyline, where as much as you make it feel reasonable to have some oversight over these people, because... In the real world, obviously you would want some oversight over a bunch of superpower vigilantes. Obviously. Yes. But in the artifice of fiction and in the artifice of superhero movies, the thing that we want to see and the thing that we get vicarious feelings from is seeing the hero do heroic things, and not from a committee of nebulous people telling them not to. Yeah, I mean, you can frame it as an argument for civil liberties, essentially, which, like you said, doesn't entirely hold up upon examination when you're talking about people who can level entire city blocks with a thought. But in a world of absolutes, of blacks and whites with good and evil, and, and you've got Captain America on one side, you can say, yeah, I think I can trust him to make the right decision. Real world, of course, doesn't work that way, but um, that's that's the, the magic of the movies, of course. I will say that it does strike me as, as a little bit odd that having started out as an initiative organized by, what were they called, the World Council and yeah. the... 
first and second Avengers films or yeah, first like Avengers that. and uh, Captain America, the winter soldier where they were summarily dismantled. Then they kind of just fell under the auspices of shield. It seemed like, and now I, I guess as of the start of, as of the beginning, that opening scene, which is pretty spectacular. I, I have to say of this movie we're told that the Avengers are operating independently. It seems like very public tragedy or not, that's something that wouldn't be allowed to go unchecked for very long. So it surprises me that Cap himself is so surprised that the UN now wants to get their hands in their business. I mean, it it really seemed like an inevitability that that hammer would fall again. And for him not to be able to just kind of navigate that bureaucracy, um, I don't know. It, it does speak to his perhaps naivete a little bit, but also his his purity of heart. He's a very earnest character, if, if nothing else. See, that's something that could come out of naivete. It's also something that can come out of cynicism, because... Over and over in the Captain America movies and in the Avengers movies, Steve Rogers is let down by the moral compromises of others. True. You know, by basically everything that everyone does in Winter Soldier, when he finds Hydra equipment on the helicarrier in the Avengers and gets upset about that, he keeps running into compromises that other people have made. Well, and Tony, I mean... For as much as their friendship, or at least grudging respect, has developed to this stage, how much faith does he really have in Tony to get this right? Not to say that he blames him for what happened in Age of Ultron, but we've seen what happens when Tony Stark's intellect and his technology goes unchecked. So for him to be sort of heading up this effort could cast a a bit of suspicion on on the motives. So yeah, you're right. It it may not be born entirely of his naivete, but just his development and learning about the world and how it's changed since his time, so to speak. Well, that's kind of what I said before. He doesn't trust anyone who would be overseeing him as much as he trusts himself. Right. He doesn't trust S.H.I.E.L.D. He doesn't trust... The government, he doesn't trust the UN, he doesn't trust this committee, he doesn't trust any of them to make the right decision more than he trusts himself to make the right decisions. And because of the way that his character is portrayed, we as the viewers are led to agree. (laughs) Well, we're always led to agree with the protagonist. And again, it's a Captain America movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're almost always led to agree with the protagonist, especially in superhero stories. Now, I will say I appreciated the fact that the characters actually sit down and have a sensible conversation on the matter, weighing the pros and cons. That's a big improvement over the comics, and I I don't want to get too bogged down in, in comparing this to the comics because that's not really what the point of this is. But certainly Nuance was far from the name of the game in the original miniseries, but they do inject some of that into this film. 
They talk about, you know, the merits of oversight and you see where different characters are coming from and you can sort of question how true is that to to their development. Yeah, I really appreciated that scene too and I really appreciated how each character had their reasons for picking the side that they do. When they first announced the lineups, when they did the like poster version of here's Team Iron Man and here's Team Captain America, there were some quizzical glances at some of the alignments. Mm -hmm. And I was going into this movie kind of thinking, well, how is Team Iron Man going to come together? Because Captain America is the leader. He's the one who can strategize and inspire people with his moral rectitude. Iron Man might have some heavy lifting to get people on his side, but the way that they did it in the movie, with people one by one kind of deciding where they stood, except for Rhodey, who's always going to be with Iron Man, but, you know, that happens. Everyone had their reasons, and they were pretty well thought out. To the extent that the characters themselves were thought out, I mean, we haven't seen that much of Wanda or Vision at this point. You know, I almost feel like there's a a movie missing between Avengers and Civil War, where where we see more of the Avengers 2.0 in action. Cap's kooky quartet, so to speak, which, again, I'm borrowing a line from the comics and fudging a little because the characters don't line up exactly. But it seems like the setup for the Avengers at the start of this film was Cap, Vision, Scarlet Witch, Falcon and Black Widow, right? It, and I guess Rhodey was on the sidelines, but he didn't participate in that mission. So you didn't really know where he stood. But this was a team of Avengers that was operating independently that we hadn't really gotten to know very well other than seeing them very briefly at the end of Age of Ultron. So kind of would have been nice to get a little bit more development on some of the newer characters, but... You know, that's one of those things. There were enough players in this as it was, so you kind of just decide, pick a side, even if it's a little bit arbitrary. Well, you know what? I left the theater when I saw Age of Ultron thinking, I want to see the Vision movie now. Yeah, right? You know, because he's just a a fascinating character who stood out a, a little bit in this movie. He had a few standout moments and, and that was very good. I was glad to see that. But man, I would like to see a whole movie just exploring his character. I think that could be interesting from a tonal standpoint, too, because it wouldn't necessarily need to be a big flashbang blockbuster in the same vein as all the other movies. It could be something a little more esoteric. But maybe we're a little ways away from Marvel branching into the esoteric. That's what I was going to say. Why would Marvel make the movie if it's not going to be a giant blockbuster? Well, they've just now started branching into not just straightforward action blockbusters, but action blockbuster comedies. So Yeah, they're, they're running out of the big guns. I mean, in a world where Marvel had the rights to all their characters, where they truly had Spider-Man, where they truly had the X-Men, I don't think we'd be seeing Guardians of the Galaxy... Black Panther or Doctor Strange. We wouldn't necessarily be seeing Iron Man. You know, it would would just be, you know, X-Men 18 opening this November. Yeah, I mean, that's the low-hanging fruit. When, at this point, we're getting X-Men... How many is it now? (sighs) Kind of depends on how you count them. Do you count the Wolverines? 
No. Three three X Men's, two Wolverines, and this is the third James McAvoy movie. So there there that is. Don't even get me started. Plus, plus Deadpool. You know what movie Marvel should make? What movie should Marvel make? They should make a movie about Stan Lee's character. That's what struck me watching the, the six that I did watch. They need to build a storyline around that guy. He's, so you he's you like, are operating under the assumption that that is the same character throughout all of these. That would be the conceit of the film, that that's the same character throughout all of these. He's a delivery man, he's a bystander in a cafe, he's an old war veteran at Iron Man's party, he, he's in the 1940s in Captain America, and he's 80 years old, he's in the 1960s in X-Men First Class, and he's 80 years old at that time, he's in the 1970s in X-Men Second Class, and he's 80 years old at that time, he's in Spider-Man in 2002, and he's 80 years old at that time, he's in Avengers in 2016, and he's 80 years old at that time, there's a story about this guy! Did you mention Hugh Hefner? He was also Hugh Hefner. In yes. one of the Iron Man movies, which you didn't see, I believe, right? No, I did not. It, cool. And he was name-checked. It wasn't just, oh, look, he's like a Hugh Hefner-esque character. No. Tony pats him on the back and says, hey, Hugh. So. Would that only wrap in Stan Lee's Marvel Cinematic Universe appearances? Because in Deadpool, he runs a strip club. Spoilers for Deadpool! Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. I'm telling you, I want to know the story behind this guy. Yeah, does does Marvel Studios have the rights to all of his other appearances in these other movies? <laughs> I, suspect, I suspect not. Well, they, they could get well, some legal trouble. Well, they eventually decided that Quicksilver was equally a mutant and an Avenger. So is Stan oh, Lee God. is yeah. Stan Lee equally a bit player in the X Men movies as he is a bit player? in the Sony Spider-Man movies as he is a bit player in the Marvel movies. Right. And then that that Ang Lee Hulk movie that no one's entirely sure how it still compares to the Hulk we're seeing now. And, well, that sort of invites the question of Spider-Man, doesn't it? Or the Hulk we're very conspicuously not seeing this year. Yeah, well, just wait for Thor. I suppose. Anyway, I just, I appreciated the fact that before it devolved into the whiz-bang explosions, fisticuffs, that the characters actually talked about this stuff. You know, it, it wasn't all just threats and coercion and everyone being belligerent for no particular reason other than the plot needs to be moved forward. I thought that uh, the movie did a, a nice job of balancing that considering how many characters it's having to juggle here. That was the other thing I was going to mention. There are characters that didn't really pick a side. Like, Spider-Man doesn't pick a side. Tony just approaches him and says, Hey, help me out with this. And he goes, he's kind of starstruck and just goes, Okay, sir. He didn't, like, sit down and dwell on the question of should he have a government committee overseeing him or should he act independently? And, you know, Ant-Man, against same kind of thing. People just showed up and said, hey, we're doing a thing, help us out. And he's like, okay. He didn't sit down and read the UN report and contemplate its implications. Yeah, that's not something that character would ever do in his life. 
you will never convince me that Spider-Man was actually planned to be a part of this movie from the beginning. I don't care what Kevin Feige says. Oh, no, of course not. They didn't even announce he was going to be in it until, like, right before they started filming, right? Right, and then they said, well, we always planned for him to be here. I'm sure they wanted him, no doubt. But it's pretty clear that they were prepared to just plow forward without him. Because as it stands, his role pretty much amounts to an extended run-in. It just screams to me script rewrite. All that said, I, I think they do make it work. You know, everyone already knows and loves Spider-Man. Audience goodwill, I think, does the lion's share of the heavy lifting that the script can really dispense with. So you can get away with just tossing Spider-Man in here. And, of course, audience goodwill toward the Marvel movies vastly outrates audience goodwill for the latest Spider-Man movies. So, Yes, quite so. Uh, let's get into Spider-Man a little bit and his role in this and the way he's used here. Here's my question about Spider-Man. Has there been a more uninteresting dude playing Spider-Man? And I didn't bother to see Ouch. any of the Andrew Garfield movies, but oh my goodness. Yeah, um, I'm of two minds on the actor's name is Tom Holland. It, that took me a second, admittedly. Um, <laughs> I was about to call up IMDb. <sighs> yeah. I, I mean, I like that he's a kid. I mean, he really, you get the sense he really is a kid. And I know that they portrayed Andrew Garfield as a high school student. Um, he did not sell that well at all. Tobey Maguire, who was like the same age as Andrew Garfield when he started playing Spider-Man in 2002, he was already a, a senior in high school, and that wasn't entirely convincing either. So... They've finally done what I, I think they should have done from the beginning with Spider-Man and make him actually a young teenager. Uh, you know, Marvel's line these days is that Spider-Man is about youth. Personally, I've always thought he was about power and responsibility, but that's me being an old fogey. Uh, so, <laughs> Well, it's about how those things are seen by a teenage dirtbag. And of yes. course, a teenage dirtbag if he really did sit down to think about the issues, is not going to want a UN committee deciding when he gets to use his powers. A teenage dirtbag doesn't even want the adults that he lives with to decide when he does anything. Sure. So you're saying that if he'd actually been presented with the issues, he would have been on Team Captain America. Disconnected from his, like, starstruck days... If he actually sat down and considered the issues involved, n no, I don't think a teen would be on the side of form a UN committee to oversee me, please. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's very much in over his head. That, that seems clear. Talk about being pressed into service. I mean, <laughs> Tony essentially blackmails him, right? And that was weird, too. Like, Spider-Man is his secret weapon, almost. Uh, again, a, a high school student, sure, he's pretty impressive. He's got some cool powers, but that smacks of 
incredibly irresponsible for a guy who's, yes. who's all about accountability now. Yes, um, it, it, that's exactly what I was just about to say. And for someone who thinks that someone needs to tell him when he's gone too far, his big idea is to put a teenager in a possibly life-or-death struggle with a bunch of experienced fighters. I was about to and ask. To drag him overseas to boot. This is not just a, a fight on the playground. I mean, this is a Yeah, does he even fight. have all his shots? <laughs> it, it's established he doesn't have a passport. I was about to ask, can we view Tony Stark recruiting Spider-Man for this through the lens of child soldiers kidnapped and pressed into service? I don't think we're supposed to, but... Well, I think we possibly can. I wonder, do they have a history of child soldiers in Wakanda? Uh, my knowledge of Wakanda is, is not up to snuff, but I don't think so. That's, yeah, I, at gonna, least that's not a big part of their foundational... I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume no. I don't think Tahala would have a big uh, struggle with Boko Haram. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> but... I think we're supposed to just like that Spider-Man is in this movie. Honestly, <laughs> yes. Let's get back to that. Sorry. I don't think we're. I don't think we're supposed to um, examine uh, the the implications. But so much, although the, I mean, the movie does open that door. We're we're talking about again civil liberties here. So, well, this is the Glenn Butler podcast hour spectacular. Overanalyzing things that aren't supposed to be overanalyzed is kind of our thing. Don't you mispronounce the name of my show? <laughs> so um spider-man he he was fun i mean i and i like that they chose an unknown actor also um you don't want someone coming with a lot of baggage you know toby mcguire was okay at the time andrew garfield was a relative unknown but he'd done some stuff tom holland i'm hard pressed to come up with anything unless he's just been in movies that are far outside my demographic which is possible but he's i mean really an unknown yeah. and that's good yeah i think they used spider-man pretty well in this movie i think they did a great job bringing a lot more of his humor into it yeah he's quippy which you want from spider-man and the other characters comment on <laughs> yeah and get quite exasperated with yeah, definitely. Um, and, of course, when they announced the casting, a lot of the furor, of course, was that it's another white guy playing Spider-Man. And, of course, there is as little reason for Spider-Man to be white as there is for any character to be white. I mean, just to establish as a baseline. It's the official stance of the Glenn Butler podcast, Our Spectacular. No character needs to be white. Just about. I yeah, think the Hydra I people can be white. Yes, the, the Nazis in movies, should be white. And it's the same way that in Hamilton, the only white actor is playing King George. You know? <laughs> Fascists and white supremacists should probably be white, I feel like. It's, yes. sort, of baked, it's sort of baked in. Well, that's, that's uh, what I mean when I say almost every character, or just about, or any, you know, sort of disclaimer like that. But, anywho. Sure. I think he does acquit himself quite well, uh, despite being pressed into service. So you can make a fair argument that Tony wasn't completely out to lunch and in, in bringing him into this. Yeah, um, yeah. He, no doubt he endangered him, and that was a very irresponsible thing to do. But it's not like he 
immediately blows it for the team or, or gets injured or killed. He is kind of their ace in the hole. Yeah, he had a really fun role in that airport fight, too. Let's talk about that whole scene a little bit. Because I like the way the movie was structured a little bit in terms of those action scenes. For any of these superhero blockbusters, you're going to have these movies anchored by their big action set pieces. And, of course, there's going to be one at the start of the movie to kind of establish everyone, and especially in this movie, to establish them as a team. I really liked the contrast between that airport fight and the big showdown at the end. The way that the airport fight was the huge, sprawling, group-against-group battle, but that it also carried the sense that everyone is kind of pulling their punches, because... There's the bit with Natasha and Hawkeye. We're still friends, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone is still not quite sure how far they want to go against these people, except the people who are strangers. You know, I do enjoy that they lampshade that a little bit. Hawkeye starts to introduce himself to Black Panther, and he's just like, I don't care. (laughs) It's kind of like a big multi-man wrestling match, a war games or a survivor series where everybody's in this big melee, but they're countering each other's stuff, like going hold for hold where no one's really gaining an advantage. That's what it reminded me of, in all honesty. It's the type of scene that you would expect as the big climax, but since that's not really what the movie's about, I appreciate that they stuck it here in the middle. Well, they got, um, they got to have both styles of climax that you'd have for a movie like this, right? They yeah. had this huge fun, sprawling battle, and then at the end is the melodramatic personal struggle in the fight in Siberia with Cap and Bucky and Iron Man. Mm-hmm. After you think things are all hunky-dory. Yeah, they could very easily have not had that final fight. In, in a version of this movie that I think might have been easier to make or would not have indulged the conflict between the characters as much... Tony gets the evidence that Bucky is actually innocent this time. It's just about the only thing he's innocent of ever. And he takes that information and frees all the Avengers he's arrested, and then they all have a final battle against the other Winter Soldiers. Yeah. I mean, that's a version of this movie they could very easily have made, and I kind of enjoy the fact that they didn't. Yeah, it was a it was a deliberate bit of, bit of misdirection because that's what they were setting up for. That's what you thought was coming. Had it not been for the trailers I saw that really teased at the more personal up close, you know, in your face fight between Cap and Tony where they're really going at it, I knew that was coming. So that's why I was like, okay, something's going to happen here where they're going to be at odds again. I wonder how they're going to get to that point, but I know that this is not how the movie's going to play out. Things are not as they seem here, and they are not going to be on the same page for too terribly much longer. Although in that fight as well, they make it pretty clear that Captain America's on the right side and Iron Man's on the wrong side. Because that fight is all about, ooh, he was programmed to kill my parents, now I'm going to kill him in revenge. And it's not just, like, a moment of anger when he wants to do that, because that fight goes on for a long, 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 long time, and he's still trying to murder the guy. Well, that gets to one of the core ideas of this movie, one of the things that animates the whole story, which is the emptiness of vengeance. 
you know, Tony wants revenge because he suddenly finds out that the guy standing next to him killed his parents. Tahala wants revenge on the guy he thinks killed his father. And then on the guy that he finds out killed his father. And Tahala eventually decides that vengeance is empty and that killing another person doesn't accomplish anything. And that's something that Tony kind of has to figure out, and I'm not sure he completely did. He was just kind of stopped. He didn't stop himself. Yeah, he didn't realize what he was doing was wrong. He was just defeated. And Tony's coming from a very emotional place throughout this entire movie. I dare say he's become more human, which is a very cliche statement, I realize. But... That kind of banter and wittiness and smugness that you've become accustomed to from Robert Downey Jr. and his depiction of Tony Stark, it only goes so far. I mean, that's fun, but at a certain point, you've exhausted that and you kind of have to move on and, and give him some actual character development, which they were successful in doing here. I, I dare say more so than in his solo films. I thought, and not to get too far off course here, but Iron Man 1 was great, Iron Man 2, not so much, and I thought Iron Man 3 was an utter piece of garbage. So what you're getting from Tony in terms of character primarily seems to come from his original solo outing and the two Avengers movies. I know there are some stuff with the PTSD and the anxiety in Iron Man 3, but it kind of doesn't go anywhere, which was one of the problems I had with that. I completely disagree. (laughs) I thought you might. I like each Iron Man movie better than the last. Wow. That might come in part from not being really well-versed in the comics, and so when Iron Man 1 came out and everyone was kind of amazed that they made a great movie and it was about Iron Man, I wasn't really part of that whole reaction. But I think each one was a, was a little more enjoyable than the last on a structural level, on a technical level, and I loved the PTSD stuff in Iron Man 3. I think that did such great things for his character. And it really fleshed out his friendship with Rhodey, too, and the way that Rhodey tried to kind of take care of him without stomping all over him. And there is great, great analysis out there on little touches in scenes between the two of them in Iron Man 3 in the context of dealing with a friend who is dealing with that sort of trauma. I think the emotional core of Iron Man 3 was great. And the Barrel of Monkeys scene in Iron Man 3 is one of my very favorite action scenes in any of these movies. Mm, Agree to disagree there. I did uh, enjoy the relationship between Tony and Rhodey in the third film. If, If nothing else, I like that. I just... I thought that they swept his emotional catharsis under the rug a a little too quickly, which, as later films would bear out, didn't entirely prove to be the case, but that's what it felt like by the end of that movie. Things were just a little too neat and tidy, and it, it didn't work for me. Well, speaking of characterization, we are going to get to a little more of the characterization in Civil War. We're going to get to how more of the characters are used in this large, large cast of this movie. 
But first, we are going to take a short break and listen to advertising for wrestling podcasts. Come back after the break to hear more on characters and me saying T'Challa a few more times to see when Tim's going to start correcting me. It's T'Challa. I don't care. I didn't think he did. We will see you on the other side. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nation's justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes and place nation.com you can check out scott criscolo and me on the mothership the place to be podcast with our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews ptbn also covers current day wrestling with main event mission indie possible and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on wwe nxt and ring of honor super shows and relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by ben morse and the dangerous alliance wrestling podcast as we dive into various subjects and in the form of exercises and games. We got sports covered too with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott, Dr. G, Cowboy, and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport led by Live Audio Wrestling's Godfather Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceTobeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTobeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Nobody needs me. I need the other guy.
we are back, still talking about Captain America Civil War, and to get back into part two here, let's talk about our experiences going to the theater for this for a minute or two, because we all went on opening night. This is kind of a reaction show environment. Hopefully we'll be able to edit this thing and get it out soon, but um, we, all, we all went opening night, and uh, Tim, what was your situation like down there? Well, I planned to go to the 7 o'clock showing, which seemed to be the first at the theater that I was going to go to. Left work around 6, got there by quarter till. 7 p.m. showing was sold out by that point. Fortunately, it was playing on multiple screens. There was another one at 7.30. Not that big a deal for me to hang out for a little while. But there was quite a line, and in that line, it was really a sea of Marvel t-shirts, Marvel logos. You know, that's something else that's worth commenting on, is wearing a shirt with the character of the movie that you're going to see, like wearing the t-shirt of the band in the concert that you're attending, where that's just like a total like loser you don't do that lame-o thing. I think the jury's still out on that when it comes to superhero movies. And for that matter, if it's wrong to wear a Captain America t-shirt to a Captain America movie, could you wear an Iron Man t-shirt to a Captain America movie, even though he's in the movie, just to kind of you know demonstrate which side you're on? Or is that you know just another lame loser thing to do and you're better off wearing a Deadpool shirt. I honestly never knew that about going to see bands, so thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah, don't do that. Why not? Actually, do what you want. I mean, that's a really stupid rule. Yeah. Um, Why are you going to wear your Captain America shirt that's any better than wearing it to the Captain America premiere? It's just one of those things. I mean, you're already going to see a comic book superhero movie. You're not going to get any lamer because of the t-shirt you're wearing. <laughs> and you wear it proudly. No, I, I, I don't think that rule applies to, to movies at all. But I will say there it was a very um, eclectic and enthusiastic crowd. Definitely a lot of laugh lines, a lot of applause um, at various points in the movie. Oddly enough, Spider-Man got a pop, but not what I would have expected just based on the hype surrounding the fact that, oh my god, Spider-Man is now in a Marvel Studios film. Well, I think that pop was a little deflated by the trailers. Yeah, a little bit, but still. I mean, it's, it's one thing seeing it on TV, but holy shit, now it's actually happening. He just, happening, he just webbed up Cap's hands and stole his shield. I think people were actually thrown by the unfamiliarity with the actor, like Scott, you were talking about. But more importantly, Marissa Tomei's Aunt May. There was a very audible buh when they showed them <laughs> together. And you're like, hold it. Okay, that's Spider-Man. That's Peter Parker. Who the fuck is she? She's Aunt May? What? Yeah, she does look about 45 years too young to be playing Aunt May, right? Like, is that only so Tony Stark can hit on her? I don't know, because he didn't even really hit on her but that much. Supposedly, he's still reeling from his breakup with Pepper, right? So he's kind of not in that place or in that... Uh, frame of mind 
So he wasn't his usual womanizing self. But yeah, people really weren't sure what to make of that. I think myself included, even knowing that she was playing Aunt May in the movie, they've been gradually aging that character down throughout her film appearances, but this one really has uh, taken the cake. And um, not to be ageist, of course, but... Uh, sure. Wow, that's... It, it's really it, it's really a, a, an adjustment, for sure. So yeah, that was befuddling. Other points that got a lot of cheers and applause. Uh, the airport fight in general... People were losing their minds. The chase scene with Black Panther, Winter Soldier, and Cap. Black Panther in general was a real crowd pleaser. People were into him. Uh, And for good reason. We haven't talked much about him yet. But uh, I I think as an introduction, they did all the right things with that character. Even if you went in not knowing much about him or what to expect, he just had that that edginess and that cool factor, you know, that kind of hits you in that visceral place that says, oh, wow, that's something I want to see more of. So anytime he was on screen, there was kind of just that that buzz in the air. And the ending, which was, uh, you know, a little bit deflating. And we did get a round of applause when the credits rolled, which is always a little bit odd for, for a movie to get a standing ovation. But when it happens, you, you kind of know you've seen something special or experienced something special. That was largely my, my experience. Yeah, I think it's really nice to get that sort of experience on, with an opening night crowd. That's one of the reasons why I would always go to the midnight shows for movies that I cared about seeing right away. And since they started doing the midnight opening at like 8 o'clock, mm-hmm. um, that deadened a little bit but this time it really didn't like i remember i saw thor 2 at eight o'clock and the theater was like half full and people weren't really reacting that much to it it felt like i was seeing it two weeks after it opened and it was opening night so that was a little weird that didn't happen at all this time the crowd scott i think you'll agree that we had tonight was really receptive they were laughing at all the laugh lines Everything that had to do with giant Ant-Man. Yes. <laughs> yes. Got a huge... I didn't want to bring him up yet, but he stole the show. He yes, really did. absolutely. I know I was, like, giddy that for that whole scene. Something about Paul Rudd. I, I don't know what it is. It, like, he doesn't even have to try. He's just funny and endearing, and <laughs> he, he just hits it on all cylinders that no matter what he's doing, even if it's not really meant to be funny, you're, you're laughing and it's not so much laughing at him as it is laughing with him and, and appreciating what you're seeing. But yeah, in general, I think we had a really good audience. It was a good opening night crowd. Yeah. I was a little surprised at the number of people getting up to leave when the credits started. Like, have you been to any of these things? I was surprised. There were three people I saw that got up to leave, and that surprised me. Oh, well, we were further back than you in the theater, and there were a bunch of people leaving, and I was just looking around like, I mean, it's okay if you're, like, casual and you're not really hooked into this stuff and you don't, you know, you're not salivating for another couple of minutes with Spider-Man, but that still seems kind of weird to me for any of these Marvel movies. 
I don't know. There's almost a sense that people know at this point, but they also know themselves well enough that they're anticipating something that's going to be pretty deeply woven into the comics. And if they're not uh, receptive to those kind of Easter eggs, they know it's not going to be for them. I don't know too terribly many people who would think that Guardians of the Galaxy is worth sticking around for to see Howard the Duck at the end if you oh. don't know a great deal about Howard the Duck. I mean, for me, yeah, that's that's great. That's That that's was incredible. Incredible. It was yeah. incredible. It was absolutely incredible. But if you don't know who that character is, it's kind of like, huh, what was that? There are people that don't know Howard the Duck? Well, yeah. Hey, you know, there are people who only know that really old movie, The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah, that... That was a good line. Yeah, that was... Hmm. Not, very, <laughs> not very believable, though. Come on, science geek Peter Parker doesn't... He, he's a Star Wars geek, you know it. I don't care how old he is. Well, sure, but that stuff is still really old. That old... Yeah. Anyway. Like, how old is Peter Parker actually supposed to be in this? Is he like 16, 17? I th- I'm younger. thinking like 15, 16. Okay, so he was born near or in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. so he was Ten- born potentially like after 9 11. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, God. Yeah, Peter Parker's a 9 11 baby. I don't yeah. know if there are a lot of 9 11 babies. Well, it is my birthday, but it was my 18th birthday, so. <laughs> <laughs> Still, calling <laughs> Empire Strikes Back that old movie, it's its just funny. But yeah, Ant-Man, stole the show. Yeah, let's get into some of the some of the other characters. Now, we mentioned Ant-Man, and his role is a little limited, but he didn't need a bigger role. I think he's used pretty perfectly here. Like, mm-hmm. his powers still make the, the battle that he's in more interesting. I think the fight scenes in Ant-Man just because of the powers that he has, are different from the fight scenes in every other Marvel movie. And yeah. that was, like, the reason I liked Ant-Man. I don't understand how he's still able to maintain momentum after he shrinks. Does he maintain the same mass? He's stronger when he shrinks. You really can't get into the physics of... Even yeah. the even the pseudoscience around, I'd say, Ant Man is is very dodgy. Yeah, I th- I think if you actually tried to watch Ant Man, the physics would anger you. Because you also have his his entire um, apparatus, his costume, enlarging and shrinking with him. Yeah, when which... it when it kind of veers into quantum mechanics, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've and just unstable got... molecules. Yeah, you've just kind of give got to give it up to movie magic at that point. Yeah, he not only maintains his momentum, he is stronger the smaller he is. You know, because so. ants can lift more than their bodies, so if you're the size of an ant, boom, there you go. <laughs> yes. Well, by lift more than your body, does that mean lift more than, like, two-ounce, two-inch tall guy, or lift <laughs> more than your full-size 150-pound frame? He has the proportionate strength of an ant. Much like Spider-Man has the proportionate strength of a spider. Exactly. Because if he maintains the same mass and then shrinks down to that tiny size, he should be like break through the floor or something. Like You can't put that much weight on his tiny little footprint. The physics of Ant-Man is a fool's errand. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. 
I think I think I'm too much of a physics nerd to ever enjoy that character. Look, they they threw miniaturized vehicles and then enlarged them on the on the way to their targets. That was the biggest pop. Now that I think about it, of the entire movie, when Ant Man um, was giant, he was able to step on things and crush them as if he weighed much more than he did as a regular sized person. That means mm-hmm. his mass changes when he changes in size. If giant Ant Man weighed enough to step on a truck, then tiny Ant Man does not weigh enough to like affect the momentum of any normal-sized person. Well, here's the thing. That's the whole, very inconsistent. As far as the whole conservation of mass and energy, what you have to understand, Scott, is that when these characters go through these transformations, I'm thinking of the Hulk as well, they're, they're tapping into another dimension where they're drawing energy and converting it to mass as needed. And when they no longer need it, that, that mass is shed reconverted into energy and goes back to its its home dimension i swear to god there's canonical evidence for that in marvel handbooks from the 80s that's fine the, However, the official handbook of the the marvel universe established that nowadays we tend to gloss over it um that's it, fine i can believe that that's a there perfectly go. acceptable explanation however when he changes size and thus changes mass the little bit of momentum he had when he had tiny mass should not be enough momentum to have any effect on his g- normal-sized, normal-massed body. He should well, lose they... velocity as he gains mass to maintain a consistent momentum. The uh, the the interdimensional aperture is is still open, and that's where he's funneling some some of that uh, additional momentum and drawing upon it as needed. There, there's my no prize explanation. I'm giving you pseudoscience at least. <laughs> Give me that much. Consider yourself awarded with the no prize. Nonetheless, he's he's one of the characters who like is shipped in from a comedy movie and kind of brings that sensibility with him in kind of the way that Spider-Man does. Yep. And the thing about this movie is they're still introducing characters well into their running time. I mean, it's like an hour plus when we're getting Spider-Man, Ant-Man, Black Panther. All of a sudden, they're they're just getting flown in. And by introduce, I mean they, they appear in the movie and they take a side and participate, but we don't get much in the way of backstory, which is good because we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> and Again, it goes back to this is not one of those films that's interested in catching you up on where everyone has been for the last, oh, 12 movies. It, it wants to hit the ground running, and it's got a limited amount of time in which to do it. Let's move on to a couple other characters I think we can discuss together, and that's the Scarlet Witch and my guy, The Vision. Some of the things that I follow online are kind of skewed toward WandaVision shipping. And of Mm -hmm. course, while I myself am not a shipper of any stripe, really, with very, very few exceptions, I think they handled that pretty well in this movie. A lot of that goes back to the comics, where they have a very storied history. That would be another podcast onto onto itself to even... I think scratch the surface of, but I'm with you in that the the little exposure that they've had in the movie so far, I think they've handled it pretty well. 
and Age of Ultron, they they had that moment, right, where he rescues her at the end, and they just sort of exchange glances. And it was subtle enough that you may not have even noticed it without having knowledge of, of that history from the comics. But for me, it was just like, oh, you know, it, it just it felt right. It was such a small moment, but it was, it was one of my favorite elements from that movie, which, again, not to not to get too far afield. I, I had some problems with Age of Ultron, but I really liked the intro to Vision and I liked the, the limited interaction that he and Wanda had. And how that was continued here in Civil War. Yeah, I think there are some really interesting stories to be had with the Vision, which is why I want the Vision movie. But I still think that the little glimpses into that were pretty well done here. I liked Vision in normal clothes. I think that's fun. <laughs> yes, that, that as well as a touch from the comics that uh, it looks absurd and the 80s very cheaply produced limited color palette but the domesticated life that he shared with wanda back in the day was punctuated by some very interesting sweaters of their day i'll I'll just say that yeah with the fashion choices that he makes he kind of comes off like the weird dad Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh scott what do you think of these two characters in this movie well that just raised all sorts of questions for me about like (laughs) vision's life outside of avengers missions like he lives at the compound there? I mean, does he sleep? How does he generate energy? Does he eat? Does he... He says he doesn't eat. He well, has never... How does he refuel? Uh, I take it that he's powered by the Infinity Stone, which seems to have an independent, unlimited power source. Again, don't question the physics. That's a an item of, of mystical origin, so physics need not apply. So what does he do during the 18 to 20 hours a day that all of the humans are eating and sleeping and bouncing balls off the wall or reading novels or whatever it is they do? Well, okay, the sense that I get from the internet is that in the comics, a lot of what he does is spin in existential crisis. <laughs> Uh, and there was a vision little... existentialist. Uh, yes, exactly. And there was a little bit of that in Ultron when he was first kind of awoken, and he had to go through some like, "What am I?" as his animating question. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that he, you know, observes human nature and other things that you know robots do, and you know, kind I get of. The, I get the sense that he trolls Wikipedia articles all day. With his vast encyclopedic knowledge, he just edits and trolls articles at will. But no, in in some respects, he's that character, and by that character, he's kind of the data of the series. Except in the sense that Vision does have, and does experience human emotions, does have a pretty fully formed personality. He's just new to sentience. As he explained in Age of Ultron, I'm only two days old, or a day old, or whatever. I was uh, born yesterday. I yeah, was born... Yeah, that was the line. I was born yesterday. So I, I think he, yeah, spends a lot of time figuring things out, figuring out who he is, who he wants to be, reveling in his 
emotions to the extent that he recognizes and experiences them. He's a synthetic person in that he's made out of artificial parts, but they all function like any flesh and blood human being, including his mind. So you can call him an artificial life form, but that gets into questions of what is life, what is intelligence, that, uh, yeah, would be interesting to explore in in a solo film. I'm with you on that, Gwen. Uh, The Vision has always been a pretty fascinating character for me. And when you scrape off the barnacles and all the baggage and the shitty continuity that comes with him from being kind of raked over the coals in the comics since kind of his inception there's there's a core that's pretty interesting and we're worthy of of further examination i think i'm also thinking of like in the upcoming slate which of the other movies does he fit into like as a bit player as a bit player well well, well, as, and, well as a supporting role like he was in this yeah, I don't know. It, it kind of all hinges on the, the role that he's going to serve in the Infinity War. You know, he's in possession of one of the MacGuffins that's going to be at the heart of that plot, I'm assuming. So where he goes from there, who's to say? Yeah, I mean, I assume they're going to want to have him in something because he's part of the ensemble, but I don't really see an obvious place for him to kind of slot in until Avengers Part 3, Part 1 in another two years. Well, they're not really using the ensemble. I mean, of the 12 superheroes that are in this movie, there's going to be a Spider-Man movie in 2017 and a Black Panther movie in 2018. The other 10 aren't slated to appear again until Avengers 3. Well, I mean in the sense that Black Widow was a major character in Captain America 2. You know? And the Hulk is going to be in Thor 3. That, you know, some of these people kind of get sprinkled into other movies when they're not getting movies of their own. Mm hmm. The Hulk is going to be in Thor 3? Oh, yeah. That's, that's Scuttlebutt. I heard it from my friend Tim. <laughs> <laughs> you can take it to the bank. Yeah, I, I don't see him uh, being a, a secondary character or, or a place for him outside of. Avengers proper or one of the other principal characters like I I wouldn't count on seeing him in Doctor Strange or Black Panther or no if there was maybe maybe Captain Marvel something like that maybe but like if there was another Iron Man movie I would expect him to be in that yeah but that would make sense the, the particular ones that we have coming up I don't see one where he really fits not like I know what's happening in any of them but you know sure uh, let's talk about someone who is getting their own movie in a couple of years, and that is the, uh, newly introduced Black Panther, T'Challa. Uh, Scott, what do you think of the introduction of T'Challa in this movie? What sense of him do you get? I found it kind of weird, not because of anything about the character even. It felt sort of incongruous that they're having this whole debate about forming a committee to oversee the Avengers because they can't have these people acting on their own. And it's not even a committee from one government, but it's a committee that 117 countries have signed on through the United Nations to all of these people, 117 different governments to form this working group together. And then we're introduced to a monarchy. Mm -hmm. That felt kind of incongruous to me. It is kind of plopped in there. There's a sense that he 
almost feels like one character too many. But if it's a choice between keeping him and trimming out some of the ancillary characters, I'd rather keep him around. I think it's a very incongruities and all. <laughs> I think it's a very interesting dynamic that the king of the country is also a superhero. Yeah. It, it sort of feels like that would work better when he was still the prince. And the king could be the king, and then the prince has this second life where he goes out and is a superhero. It feels very different now that the king of the country is also a costumed superhero. Yeah, I kind of wonder if his solo movie might have substantial parts of it set before this where he is the prince. And, I mean, it has to be more of an origin story than we got just you know, reference here, but... I I thought there was enough of an origin story in this movie. I mean, it wasn't the entire origin story, but it was enough to introduce the character. Okay, you know, the Black Panther identity has been passed down warrior to warrior, and now it's mine. I thought that was enough to introduce him to the audience. And of course, maybe this is just me, but they introduced this African monarchy, and immediately I'm thinking about coming to America. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, if, I, I if, can if, see that. If in Coming to America, Eddie Murphy put on a Black Panther suit in the middle of the movie. God almighty. Well, I, I guess we're using our different cultural touchstones. I, 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 I thought the whole thing was probably based on Emperor Haile Selassie, and you're thinking of Coming to America. Cultural touchstones, indeed. Well, um, excuse me if I just want to leap to the closest Madge Sinclair movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is your show I, we ought to indulge you that I, I suppose if we're going to analogize it to a Madge Sinclair movie then let's compare it to Star Trek 4 where that random helmsman on the starship later went on to be the Federation president yes exactly M- much the way that Takala takes over as the king you guys remember that old movie Star Trek 4 um, <laughs> it's not as old as Empire Strikes Back not uh, quite Guess not. Um, in fairness, I'm not even going to try to say it the way you're saying it, Clint T'Challa. <laughs> no! No! Because I don't think I can. <laughs> We're Fox. talking about cultural touchstones. I, I, I don't think I'm cap- my mouth is capable of producing that sound. I'm sorry. I don't F- want to, fine, fine. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to embarrass myself or you. Um. He, in fairness, he, he is only uh, truly the king through the death of his father, which occurs, you know, in kind of the second act of the movie. So it seems like he's had some more practice in this whole superheroing gig throughout his tenure as Prince, I suppose. Prince, the... Well, Cultural touchstones. Right? Yes, speaking of. What we didn't get a whole lot of was the society that, you know, he is representing Wakanda. Uh, you know, you see it briefly at, at the end in the mid credit sequence when they put Bucky back on ice. They talk a little bit about vibranium, which is used in the form of a WMD here, kind of, sort of. But it, again, it's just touched on. They're, they're saving a lot of that stuff for his solo movie, you can tell. Um, and how technologically advanced they are but at the same time are a little bit throwbacky in the sense that it is a monarchy but that's the that's the high concept with wakanda they are the most technologically advanced nation on the planet and that has allowed them to be extremely isolationist 
So, but we'll get there. Do we have anything else on Tahala before we move on? No, I think we pretty much covered Tahala. All right. Uh, who else do we have to do here? I almost choked myself trying to say it that time. See? <laughs> <laughs> the hell just came out of my mouth. Tahala. Tahala. God. Let's move on to a character I can pronounce, like Black Widow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Staying with our Black characters, let's talk about Black Widow a little. (laughs) You are a problematic white liberal intellectual. Oh, intellectual. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Hey, I'm the one that keeps talking about physics. (laughs) so black widow i think was the character who garnered the most kind of eyebrow raising when they announced the lineups and she was put in team iron man because she was so closely identified with captain america Mm -hmm. i think logically when you examine the characters it seemed like more of them would side with cap and they realized that the deck was going to be stacked more in his favor so somebody had to swerve the audience. But at the same time, her characterization in the first Avengers movie kind of went along the lines of some of Tony Stark's characterization, where she's done all these bad things that were not really told about in the past, and so maybe she would feel like she needs some sort of structure to be in. And she's a pragmatist. She she can read the writing on the wall. Like I was saying before, she knows that this kind of oversight is inevitable. However, who was it? Uh, Falcon who said, weren't you the lady who told the the government to go fuck themselves, essentially, by releasing all those documents a couple years ago? So it's, uh, you know, it, it almost feels like walking back some development for her a little from Cap 2. But I, you know, I can see both sides of it. The way she explained her position in that scene made sense. And leading her to choose the side that she chose made sense based on that explanation. I still kind of think, especially with her background of being controlled by a government, that maybe she would be more likely to go the other way. Mm. What do you make of the uh, turncoat? scene as Stark describes it later when she kind of starts fighting Black Panther a little bit to allow Steve to escape. I kind of think that that's not really her changing sides. It's more along the lines of, like she says, I said I would help you catch him, not kill him. Yeah, that's part of it. Also, that's sort of the moment where she decides that she also trusts Captain America more than she trusts this committee that's trying to oversee the Avengers. And she also gets that there's more at stake, that this is not a matter of one side versus the other. She can see those shades of gray, so to speak, and makes a choice in the moment. Okay, they've got bigger fish to fry. I think I'm going to let this one slide. You know, she, she can walk that line in the way that other characters maybe can't quite so comfortably. Yeah, she seems like a character who is readily able to see that there might not be big, bright lines. You know, that there are shades of gray in all these things. 
Uh, let's move on to Hawkeye, who is maybe a little bit of an afterthought, but he's been kind of an afterthought in all these movies, hasn't he? Yeah, he just sort of shows up <laughs> out of nowhere every time he shows up. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of an opportunity there is to do more of a feature role for him. I mean, I like the character well enough when he shows up, but I'm not sure how much more I really want of him. Tim, what do you think? I'm right there with you. How much more do I really want of him? When you mentioned Hawkeye, my knee-jerk reaction was, ugh, Hawkeye, which is unfortunate because that's a character that I... I really like uh, not a favorite or a top 10 or anything like that but as a longtime supporting member of the avengers you know he's up there and he's just kind of gotten short shrift in these movies you know i know joss whedon tried to give him a little bit more to do in, in age of ultron but it was material that i think could have been utilized a little bit better what they gave him was maybe not to his advantage Speaking to the character or to the actor, Jeremy Renner, it, it just didn't really work what they tried to do with him in Age of Ultron. And when they retired him at the end of that movie, it sort of didn't make a lot of sense for him to be here when this was already as crowded and as packed with characters as it was. He said he, he just walks on set out of nowhere and it's like, oh, okay, now Hawkeye's here, but... Had they left him out, it wouldn't have been hurting for his absence at all. Yeah, I think there's some opportunity to use Hawkeye as the guy who's kind of sick of all this shit. And <laughs> yeah. who's a little grizzled, about as grizzled as Jeremy Renner is going to be, but hear me out. Uh, who really just wants to be done with the superhero mission so he can go fishing with his kids. You know? Mm -hmm. And that is an opportunity that's not really taken all that much. Well, that's kind of how they use him here, isn't it? I mean, he shows up and the first thing he says is, you know, what happened? I retired for two months and everything goes to shit? Yeah, but then he's kind of milk toast for a lot of his screen time here, of which there isn't much. Again, I feel like it's one of those things where they're, they're just trying to even the sides up. They needed another character, so let's bring in Hawkeye. Hawkeye always strikes me as weird... Because he's an archer. And I'm not sure why that strikes me as weird. It really shouldn't when I think about it. But just the sort of brutality and finality of shooting an arrow at somebody. It's not like the other people who like punch someone or hit them with an energy pulse that knocks them out. Or throw a shield at a guy to knock him over. You shoot someone with an arrow, that's pretty direct. And even when other people are shooting each other with guns, the, the sort of brutality of shooting an arrow through somebody always sort of strikes me as different from everyone else. It is kind of a low-tech solution to what are often very high-tech problems. That said, he, he does have quite a lot of trick arrows in his arsenal, as we see. Um, it You know, if nothing else, him being there gave us that great scene of Ant-Man being launched on the tip of an arrow, which, again, is a, a very iconic scene from the comics. There's, there's a cover in particular that everyone who's ever read Avengers knows quite well. So that's just an Easter egg tossed in. Might justify his entire presence in this movie. <laughs> um, because it otherwise didn't amount to a great deal. Uh, I, you know, I was also 
it didn't make a great deal of sense for him to be siding with Cap, given that he had retired and was kind of sick of all this shit. I could almost see Tony reaching out to him and bringing him back into the field and saying, hey, look, we just need an extra hand here. Can you help us out? We're all about accountability and oversight and doing things the right way. So you're not going to get roped into the pandemonium that, that has come with your tenure with the Avengers to date. And on Team Iron Man, you're probably not going to prison. Mm. Probably. Yeah. Uh, even for as short a time as they wind up in prison. <laughs> yep. Speaking of Team Iron Man, let's talk about Rhodey for a little bit. I know when they released the trailer, there was that shot of him lying on the ground after he shot out of the air, and there was a lot of speculation that he was the one who was going to die in this movie. Which, I'm pretty thankful they didn't do. Obviously, with the Civil War storyline, like, the thing that people who don't know anything about comics, i.e. me, the thing that I knew about Civil War was, one, it was, you know, a big conflict about registering guys, which if that wasn't that big a part of it, fine. And Captain America was assassinated at the end. And a black guy gets killed by having a hole blown in his chest. That happens in Civil War as well. Oh. It wasn't Rhodey. Oh, but... mm. that's okay. So if you didn't know that, now you do. <laughs> so that kind of hangs over the movie a little bit, where you're waiting to see who is going to die in this movie. Is someone going to die? Is someone high profile going to die? And it turned out, especially after the set pics leaked of Chris Evans carrying a uh, casket... Um, <laughs> And it turns out that the person who died in this movie was Peggy Carter. Mm -hmm. Partly because that's the next thing they can do with her character. Partly because they can have flashbacks and she can show up at any point in the last 65 years. Partially, I felt, because it almost felt like they thought they had to kill Agent Carter before Steve could kiss another woman. Who happened to be her niece? That too. Which, so, you know, bothered me more than, I mean, it's always been a little bit icky, but actually seeing it in the movie like this, I don't know, just, just went to a different place and anything. Ah, I don't like this at all. Well, you know, I'm not going all in for romantic pairings. Mm, no, no, I don't blame you. I always take romantic pairings in movies with a grain of salt because it just doesn't it never really clicks for me that, oh, these two people have fallen in love over the past 80 minutes. Mm -hmm. So so that always kind of... I always just sort of have to accept it, much like Ant-Man's physics. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is harder for you to accept? <laughs> you must choose. I just have to just take it as it is. Like, oh, okay, these two characters are in love now. And just sort of get past the fact that it happened over 90 minutes. Well, and, I mean, Peggy's death also does put that spring in Steve's step where, you know, he's... We've already established that Tony is coming from a place of emotional turmoil, and now we've eject, injected some of that into Steve's struggle as well. As well as delivered the uh, conveniently timed emboldening message at her funeral. 
Well, yeah, and I was going to touch on, on that, too. I'm glad you brought it up. What Sharon says there, that line about when the world is telling you to move, you say, no, you move, is part of a speech that Cap actually gave to Spider-Man, I think either in the lead-up or during Civil War. Context, quite different. Um, circumstances, pretty different. But putting those words in an abbreviated version, and Sharon's mouth, I kind of marked out for that. I don't know how it came off to anyone who hasn't heard that before, or isn't familiar with, again, the source material. Maybe you guys can enlighten me, but it was kind of cool that they, they put that spin on it and, and giving her that sort of rousing, motivational moment. I liked the way they did that, the way they incorporated Peggy Carter's struggle against authority in trying to achieve these things as a woman in a male-dominated society and sort of related that to Captain America's mistrust of the overarching wisdom of those in authority. I thought that was done well. Yeah. I will just say I'm glad that they didn't kill Steve at the end of this. Yes, because we know he's going to be around for Infinity War. I mean, Chris Evans is signed for another movie. Whether you are considering parts one and two of the Infinity War one film or two for contract purposes, I really don't know. But we know that Chris Evans is going to be around for that. So let's not waste the time on going through the contrivance of bringing him back and getting him back into circulation. We don't need it. You know, don't, don't insult our intelligence at this point. So I, I am so glad they didn't do that. Yeah. I think it's just as well that they got through this story without any major deaths. Mm -hmm. You know, Rhodey is still around and he has some recovering to do and that's cool. You know, agent Carter is gone, but are they doing another season of her TV show? We can check in on her at any point in the timeline. I think that's actually done. What does Captain America do now? Because, like, him and Hawkeye and Falcon and Wanda the Witch, they're all, like, on the run now, right? They're, like, hiding out from the UN and the governments? Well... That is something we can definitely get into as far as the kind of fallout of this movie and where all the characters are going to wind up in different ways. Because just like after The Winter Soldier, when I left the theater saying, you know, well, how are they going to deal with this and all the other movies? And then I believe the next movie was Guardians of the Galaxy, which was in space and had nothing to do with anything. I think... It might be kind of a smart strategy on Marvel's part to do these, like, cataclysmic events that kind of reshape the landscape of a lot of these characters and then slot in a movie that's a little more of a one-off, as much as they get in this franchise, and kind of separated from that overarching story. You know, all everything that happened in this movie reshaped a lot of the characters, changed their alignments, and the next movie in November is Doctor Strange. That, for all I know, has nothing to do with anything. Right, probably won't. And then the next movie after that is Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which probably won't have anything to do with anything other than Guardians 1. And so the next one that's really picking up on any of the characters in this movie directly 
is July 2017, where we have Spider-Man 1 slash Spider-Man 6, depending on how you count. Which is probably not going to involve any of the other people. Yeah, not even... That doesn't even have to connect to anything, really. I was going to say, it's probably going to dance between the raindrops of this movie, where maybe there's a little bit set before, a little bit set after, or all of one or the other. As long as we don't have to watch Uncle Ben die again, right? Oh, for fuck's sake. Well, how do you make Spider-Man 1 without Uncle Ben dying? We already have Spider-Man. He's Spider-Man. Because he's died, like, three times already. <laughs> But I, I still wonder, what are they... This group, are they just going to, like, hide out in Wakanda for the whole time? Or are they going to, like, go out and do missions of their own and be hunted down by Iron Man and Vision and all of that group that's operating under the orders of this UN committee? I'm sure that as long as Steve Rogers is out there, he's going to be, like, the A-team now. Where he's kind of on the run, but he's helping people in every town he winds up in. And... I don't know that Iron Man and Vision and all them will turn into, like, the government goons trying to hunt them down, because I think after the events of the movie, and especially after Steve's letter at the end of the movie, which is perfect in two ways. One, Steve is the only person in this movie who would write a goddamn letter. <laughs> and two, it's the Civil War, and he wrote a letter home. I mean, yeah, you might as well. That is a little. That is a little perfect. I mean, you might as well plug in a Shokin farewell. <laughs> My dearest Stephen, a Shokin farewell would have been a better track than any other track in the music of this movie. But we'll get to the score later. Oh, I suppose and, we will. And we but do I mean, see Tony put uh, Secretary Ross on hold, as he mentioned he was so fond of doing. Yes. Uh, when he calls at the end, so he doesn't seem terribly invested in pursuing this much further. Yeah, for all it's, this sets up the conflict of should we operate under this oversight or shouldn't we, they very clearly show that the oversighting people are wrong. They give out a shoot-to-kill order for somebody who didn't commit the crime that they're trying to find the perpetrator of, and then even Iron Man, who presented this whole idea... Even he turns off the surveillance so he could sneak away and go and help them against the orders of this committee. And then when the committee calls him for help because they've been attacked by Captain America, he puts them on hold and ignores them. So even the guy that proposed the oversight committee is now ignoring the oversight committee. I think for all of Tony's angst that he's experiencing and that we see here, that can only be matched by his ego. And he's down with this government-slash-UN oversight to the extent that he's going to be calling the shots and making the rules. Um, for all he says that he's ceding power, so to speak, he's very much a part of this formative process. So that's why he feels like he has the luxury of putting the Secretary of State on hold, because he's fucking Tony Stark, and he can do that. Yeah, I think maybe Tony Stark is willing to accept structure as long as he doesn't think it's stupid. Mm-hmm. Which... And if he thinks it's stupid, he's going to disobey it, and when he thinks it's sensible, he'll go along with well, it. Well, that's not very effective oversight, then. No, not no. really. No, not at all. But I think how... that's his version of oversight. How is this in any way preventing him from making another Ultron-level mistake, like he says it was supposed to do, if he ignores know, it whenever he disagrees with it. 
There's an argument to be made that this is a big rationalization on his part. I mean, like I said, it's not like nobody said, no, don't do that. Bruce Banner said, no, don't do that. Yeah, in, in a movie where Tony Stark turned into the mad scientist, the other mad scientist was trying to get him to stop. <laughs> yes. But, but supposedly, the way this is supposed to work is there's this UN committee that is in charge of ordering around the Avengers, which now consists of Iron Man and Black Widow and the Vision. And shouldn't their fugitive number one be the Winter Soldier? And fugitive number two would be his accomplice in escaping Captain America? And also, they need to hunt down these escaped prisoners, Hawkeye and Falcon and Ant-Man and Wanda the Witch. And so wouldn't they have the Avengers, Iron Man, Black Widow, and Vision out hunting all of these fugitive superheroes? Really, out of all of the superheroes in this movie, the person with the most sound legal standing is T'Challa because he would have diplomatic immunity. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he it, is operating under the auspices of a government. He's the king. <laughs> yes. And you notice that no one really fucks with him in that regard. <laughs> he is unfuckable. That is, well... Especially with vibranium armor. Well, that might be the only way in which he is unfuckable. But anyway... Hmm. <laughs> Curious. On that note, you know who we haven't talked about? Who have we not talked about? Actually, two characters, because I don't think there's a great deal to say about them. Uh, the Winter Soldier and Zemo, the man behind the curtain. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so, Well, Zemo, of course, also falls into the whole... Uh, idea of vengeance running through the movie. Right and, right. and he also does not come to the conclusion that vengeance is empty. He comes to the conclusion that vengeance is great. Yeah. I, I didn't get that part because they make such a big deal in Ultron of let's evacuate everyone. We're not leaving until we evacuate everyone. We're not turning off these engines until we evacuate everyone. Everyone gets onto the helicarrier they spend all of this time evacuating everyone before they blow up this thing. And then this movie is all about, well, they just killed everyone in Sokovia. Well, I, 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 think, I, I think what that was, didn't he say that his family was outside the city? So I guess they were like in the immediate vicinity of the huge plot of land crashing down to the earth. And so they were kind of in the radius of the shockwave. Yeah, it sounded like they were kind of on the outskirts, but it still didn't do them much good. That just seemed weird to me that a major, major point of the climax of Ultron was we're not going anywhere until we finish evacuating this city, and then a major, major plot point of Captain America 3 is, oh, they killed everyone in Sokovia, they need to be restrained. I think it kind of goes. It kind of speaks to that line that Cap had about uh, you can't save everybody. You save as many as you can. So yeah, yeah, they saved a lot of people. They didn't save enough people. Even if they saved ninety percent of the people, that's still a lot of people that died horribly. Also, speaking of the Winter Soldier, am I the only one that thinks that refreezing him at the end is a major, major fucking cop out ending? It kind of is. Yeah, I can see that. 
Um, because there's uh, there's not much of a reason to do it. You ask what our capping company up to at the end here. Are they just fugitives from the law? I got the sense that they're going to be kicking it in Wakanda. The film doesn't make this clear, but again, going back to their technological advantages and their isolationist policy, I think that's a place where they could have some form of amnesty, in a sense. Also, not to get too bogged down in continuity, because I tend not to like that as an aesthetic form of discussion anymore, but the Scarlet Witch has mind control powers, right? (laughs) Shouldn't she be able to do something about his brainwashing? Uh, Shouldn't she be able to, like, reach in there or something? Help, at least. I wish I had an answer for you, but I don't really understand what her powers are supposed to be. Well, God, if you don't, we're fucked. (laughs) Well, part of the problem is her powers are pretty undefined, even, you know, in the comics, where... In a very, very basic sense, she's supposed to be able to alter probabilities, okay? So she takes the improbable and makes it extremely probable. So a gun misfiring. Here we we go into quantum mechanics again. mm -hmm. Yeah, this is all... What, exactly what manipulation of Flipping, probabilities is involved in firing red bolts at people? None, none whatsoever. They... they do not. They haven't done that at all in the movie version of her character. So, so they took a character that had pretty ill-defined powers to begin with and said, let's just give her a new power set, but didn't seem to bother to define it. From what I can make of it, it seems like she has telekinesis, for starters. That's kind of a given. And yeah, we saw some mind control stuff in Age of Ultron, where she did something to manipulate their minds and everybody had their weird head trip nightmares, but that I guess has fallen by the wayside. I don't know. Um, Or maybe she just doesn't have much control over it or can't direct it in any, to any sort of specific end. I guess again, no prize explanation on my part. That's the best I can come up with. Before we close this up, let's talk about the score for this movie a little bit. Because we do that with with everything we talk about now. Now? Well, now that I have a podcast. Oh, I reiterate, now? The score for this movie really isn't much, don't you think? I liked it more than you did. Really? It's not much to listen to. If you want to buy an album and listen to it, it's not much at all. As a score for a movie, it works great. I think it's really good as a movie score. It's not really good as an entertaining piece of music to listen to on its own. Seeing it in the movie, or hearing it in the movie, as the case may be, I felt it got better as it went along. I I think toward the end of the movie, there were some good bits. There was a nice bit during the airport battle that I believe is one of our bumpers on this podcast. Overall, it seemed a little like you say about a lot of scores we talk about where there's like 10 seconds of entertaining stuff and then a bunch of just kind of dross in between. Yeah. But like I said, it's it's very much a score that's designed to accompany the movie. There isn't any track where it's like a three or five or six minute exploration of a theme. The theme pops up like once 
for 15 seconds to accentuate a moment in the film. And so as a score to underscore a film, I think it works very well. I, I, I like it a lot. I think it works in the movie a lot. It's just, it's not anything you're going to want to listen to outside of watching the movie. Yeah, I'm looking for those longer passages and those themes. Themes. I want some fucking themes. I, I think there was such a missed opportunity in almost all of these Marvel movies. Like, except for two or three of them, all of these Marvel movies have gotten just junk scores. With such a big ensemble, splitting out into singles movies, coming together for these group movies, I think there is such an opportunity to make this sort of nest of, of themes and this, like, shared material between all these movies in ways that they do very, very well in terms of the design of all these movies, in terms of the continuity. It's all very much one whole. And musically, it's just broken up. It's kind of balkanized. And that might just be because nobody cares. Kevin Feige maybe just doesn't care. I don't I don't know. I don't want to impugn the man personally. But it seems like it's not a priority for anyone. And it seemed like it might be becoming one when Brian Tyler did Iron Man 3 and then Thor 2, which was a substitution job after they fired, I believe they were going to get Carter Burwell for Thor 2 originally, which would have been weird. But... Yeah. Uh, Brian Tyler, I think, did a, an entertaining score for Iron Man 3, did an entertaining score for Thor Thor 2, 2. a great score. Yeah. And then on Age of Ultron, there were all sorts of scheduling issues. He wound up co-composing that with Danny Elfman. That was kind of a weird situation. But we're back in this movie with Henry Jackman doing the score, who also did Winter Soldier. Which was another score that worked really well in the movie and is nothing to listen to on its own. The only element from either of them I can recall off the top of my head is the, like, wailing sound effect for the Winter Soldier. Otherwise, it's just kind of anonymous to me. So, I'm just kind of disappointed that Brian Tyler isn't doing more of these, because when he did several in a row, it seemed like things were really looking up. It kind of seemed like things were looking up when Alan Silvestri did Captain America 1 and then Avengers 1, which weren't great scores, but they were, you know, pretty fun. They had melodies, they had themes, that was good. Um, it was certainly better than Iron Man 1 or 2, or Thor 1, I guess, was okay. But when Brian Tyler did Iron Man 3 and Thor 2, and even Age of Ultron, it really looked like things were looking up. Even with Ant-Man, Christoph Beck wrote a really fun theme for that one. And and now we're just back with this sort of murky stuff that doesn't really hold much attraction to me. I think you're judging it a little too harshly because you're judging it based on do I want to listen to this on my own rather than judging it as a piece of the movie. Because that's what it is. It's a piece of the movie. It's, it's like trying to judge the costume as, do I want to look at this as an art piece, rather than does it work in the movie? This score works in the movie. It underscores the movie well. The little 10-second pop-up of a theme to accentuate a moment in the film works really well to accentuate that moment in the film. It's just not a good piece of music to listen to on its own. But yeah. I think it works as part of the film. Sure. I mean, I'll concede that much. I mean, I 
greatly enjoyed the movie. The score never stood out to me as being a bad fit for the movie. It was entirely serviceable on that score. Tim, you still with us? Maybe not. Yeah, I, no, I, I'm still with you. I, I, I got nothing to add. Um, <laughs> no, that, that's that's no, totally the reason. Cool. I will say that I went into this movie knowing that you guys would want to discuss the score to the extent that there was one. So I specifically was trying to pay attention and pick up on some things that I otherwise might not have, and it still just left me cold. I mean, I, I don't think there was anything actively bad in there, but very unmemorable. As is the case, like you said, with pretty much all of these movies. Oh, it appears, looking forward a little bit, Doctor Strange is being scored by Michael Giacchino. Huh. Which is very interesting. So, I'm looking forward to that one now. Well, I might listen to that. I'm, I'm now more likely to listen to that score than I am to see that movie. Uh, Guardians 2, I assume, will be... Oh god, who was it on Guardians 1? Tyler Bates, I assume. Never heard of that guy. He was famous for ripping off an Elliot Goldenthal piece for 300 and getting sued over it. Which is why Elliot Goldenthal will never work for Warner Brothers ever again, because he sued them. <laughs> um, but that might not belong in the show. Whatever. A little I... afield. Did either of you see Batman versus Superman? No. No, I haven't seen that. Alright, well... I guess then, for the benefit of those who have, just wait for the inevitable flood of Tumblr memes comparing and contrasting the dueling mommy issues of Captain America Civil War and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Tony Stark, he killed my mom. Oh yeah, for once it's not daddy issues. Nope, not daddy <laughs> issues. Oh, by the way... About that scene with his mom early in the movie, I don't think we should get out of here without talking about CGI 1980s Robert Downey Jr. Oh, oh, yep. yeah. That I was, made a mental note of that, too. Wow. That was weirdly confusing. Like, I was kind of trying to figure out, is that Robert Downey Jr.? It doesn't quite look like him, but it sort of looks like him. He looked kind of Jake Gyllenhaal-ish, actually. Young Jake Gyllenhaal-ish, more so than young Robert Downey Jr.-ish. <laughs> uh, a little bit, yeah. Um, it was obviously something they felt they could do, I guess, whenever they want now, since they did 1980s Michael Douglas at the beginning of Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. And they've done 1980s Arnold Schwarzenegger in like two or three movies at this point. Yeah, I suppose so. We have the technology. But, yeah, that was just... Diving a little bit into the uncanny valley. Yeah, that that's a great term for it, actually. I, I couldn't really pinpoint what my feelings were when I took that whole scene in. Wasn't sure what I should be feeling, actually, and, and that sums it up pretty succinctly. Also, since Tony appears to have some sort of, like, trauma, recovery, memory-changing holodeck thing... You know, I think Bucky could use one of those. <laughs> oh, yeah, no shit. Fuck, I could use one of those. I'll finance the thing. Would that really be the best thing for Bucky to, like, relive his kills or whatever? I think part of it is reliving an event in an improved way. 
maybe in the way that sometimes traumatized people have to relive their trauma in a controlled environment, and specifically an environment that they control, so that people who are traumatized by having control taken away from them can, t can kind of reclaim it for themselves. I think for Bucky, it might help to kind of revisit, in a controlled therapeutic environment, many of the events of his long captivity and experimentation and whatever was done to him and whatever he was made to do in a way that kind of reclaims it for himself. Yeah, in lieu of literally being able to rewrite history, it's it's kind of the next best thing. And I do kind of appreciate that these bright, flashy, blowing up superhero movies have a whole lot of traumatized people in them. Well, to an extent. I mean, some of the movies deal with it more than others. That was a thought that I had watching, I think it was Avengers 2, where Iron Man hits the Hulk with a jackhammer. And I'm just watching that going, oh god, CTE! What are you doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. That might be one reason why you find people saying that Thor comes off a little bland. Because he doesn't really have that trauma at his core. No, Thor basically starts off as a dirtbag. <laughs> yeah, basically, he, he's an pseudo-immortal, maybe a more, I'm not sure, teenage dirtbag. I don't know that it's so much Thor who comes off as bland. I think his movies just haven't been that good. He's kind of the weak link in the big three. I liked both his movies. I don't know that I can do a deep, penetrating, analytical dive on them. If we're going back and talking about older movies, can we talk about how they take a movie about the Norse pantheon of pagan gods and do a Christ allegory with him? Oh. Like, what the fuck was up with that? I can't talk about that, but you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That struck me as really weird. Like, you're so wedded to your Christ allegories that you do it in a movie about the Norse pagan pantheon. Well, that's movie making in the U.S., I guess. Before we go out here, let's kind of crystallize this long discussion we've had about this movie into a very simple question. Tim, did you like this movie? I liked it. <laughs> Inevitably, you, you kind of have to re-rank all the movies when you see the latest installment, right? So, you know, having not quite digested it, we're only a couple hours removed from leaving the theater now. It's in the upper echelon. It's done the rather impressive task of improving along the way. The, the third film in any character's pantheon is rarely the best do I like this better than Winter Soldier and Cap 1? Not really sure, but boy, is it a worthy contender. I, I really had a good time at this at this film-going experience. Scott? Uh, yeah, I'd say I like it. It definitely has its flaws. It definitely has its weaknesses. But overall, yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a really good movie. Yeah, I generally agree. Biggest problem I really had with it was some of the camera work during the fight sequences. I think it felt a little too frenetic. A mm, little bit, yeah. And there was some dodgy CGI at the beginning. 
I don't know what happened there. It, it seemed like they smoothed out those edges as it went along, but that opening scene had some really noticeably wonky CGI. Yeah, but overall, I had a great time watching it, and I think that's the main thing it was trying to accomplish. Well, the main thing it was trying to accomplish was getting my money, which it did, but I had a, <laughs> I had a great time watching it, and I think it's definitely a worthy addition to all the other movies that I've liked in the series, so thumbs up well, here. And especially when you consider what it set out to do, which, like you said, is sure to take your money, but... This could have been a train wreck. I mean, it had the makings of disaster just with all the characters and, and the plot elements and everything that all the the boxes that it had to check. Right. So it it really could have fallen apart. But, you know, to go back to to what you said at the beginning here, it kept those plates spinning. And that yeah. is an admirable job for a two hour and a half movie. Yeah, I think it would have been easy to take all of these characters from all of these movies, some of which have somewhat different tones than each other, and just have it be a mess. Yeah. And it is most significantly not. It really worked in this movie in ways it didn't really work in the others. Because that was one of the th thoughts I had watching the first Avengers movie is I did not realize how much of that movie was all who would win in a fight. You know, Iron Man fights Thor, and then Captain America fights Thor, and then Black Widow fights the Hulk, and then Thor fights the Hulk, and Hawkeye's fighting everybody, and mm -hmm. that kind of just bugs me when they do that. Like, I have very little interest in who would win in a fight, the movie. You know, I don't want my heroes fighting each other, I want my heroes fighting bad guys. But in this movie, it didn't bug me at all. In this movie, I really enjoyed it. I thought they built to it well, and it worked well. It wasn't the obligatory fan service -y kind of who would win in a fight. Um, yes, there's a lot of fan service in this movie, don't get me wrong, but there was a good, solid backbone to support that. Hey, you know what? We're fans, and we like being serviced. That's okay. Hi-o. Hey On that note... <laughs> I think we are going to draw to a close here. Thank you very much, Tim, for being with us. Thanks for having me again. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for listening to us. Here on the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, we will be back soon with our ongoing series on the Star Trek films leading to the, up to the release of Star Trek Beyond in July. Our next installment will be First Contact. So if you want to hear that, then just wait a little while for it and it'll be coming up. If you'd like to hear any of our previous episodes on Star Trek movies, we did a couple on politics, which is a whole other can of fish. We do episodes on all sorts of stuff. You can find that at placetobenation.com. If you would like to contact me, I am at Glennybun on Twitter and on Tumblr. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me at the Place to Be Nation Facebook page. Uh, Tim, is there anything you want to point people to on the lines? My right. Twitter is at Psyche68, C-Y-K-E-6-8. It's been pretty dead for a while, but if you'd like to drop me a line, by all means, I will see it, I will check it, and uh, uh, if you'd like to chat, I will respond. But um, haven't been exactly proactive lately, so take that for what it's worth.
Alright, well, uh, Tim is open to chatting, so, you know, hit him up. Yes, I'll put myself out there. Uh, Scott, you're not putting yourself out anywhere. I do not currently participate in social media. Indeed. Thanks for having this discussion. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next time. discussion went on too long? I can do this all day.